I'm Neil Pickett. Welcome to episode five of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a fellow artist about their life and how they do what they do, how they make creative work. And at the end of the last episode, I said I'd take a leaf out of Hannah Bertram's book and try and see where the wind took me. Well, it blew me across Melbourne into North Fitzroy and landed me in the kitchen of the composer, Tim Dargaville, whose music is playing in the background. Tim's a pianist, percussionist and teacher whose musical voice as a composer is one of the most distinctive in the country. He was taken by the idea of composition as a teenager and has created work for the concert platform as it's rather momentously called as well as music and sound design for the theatre, which is where we met. In Australia, his music has been broadcast on ABC radio and television and has been featured in a number of festivals, including both the Melbourne and Sydney International Festivals of the Arts. Along the way, he's been the recipient of the Albert Maggs Award for Composition, the Gene Bogan Prize, and the Ian Potter Composition Commission. And his music has been well received overseas, with performances of his works being featured in programs and festivals in London, Berlin, Warsaw, the Netherlands, and India. I was late to Tim's and found him in his front studio tinkering with a piece of music. Wearing a colourful scarf and fingerless mittens, he's fighting off a cold, having not long returned to the depths of a Melbourne winter from a guest residency in Austria, where he'd been enjoying a relatively balmy northern spring. So, with the sun streaming in the back window, we sat at his large timber kitchen table, and I began by asking him about where the ideas come from. Here's Tim Dargaville. You just had a work uh, premiered in Sydney. Hmm. And it was about, you were saying earlier, it was about your mother's dementia. So when you talk about, and prior to, prior to us having this, this recorded conversation, we were talking mm. about where ideas come from and ideas, mm. you were saying ideas come from things in front of you. That's what I think now, yeah. It's kind of like a being, being alert to the detail of what's there rather than being kind of lost in the grandiosity of trying to establish an identity. Like, I think one of the things I understand better now about being... Is this on? Is it? Yeah, you're yeah, on. Yeah, you're yeah, on. Okay. One of the things I understand better about um, having an artistic practice as you get older is your, you, you know, as your view of your place in the world changes, your practice changes with it. So I can I can kind of see that as you know I've, I've been writing music probably now for about thirty years, and I can certainly see works in the catalogue which are very much about trying to establish an identity and, and kind of wave my hand in the air saying, hi, I'm here, kind of, <laughs> this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's all, um, that, that's, you should expect that. That's necessary. It's, it's understandable that you would do that, particularly when you, you know, you're new and you're, young, you're younger in your career. You're trying to cook up um, recipes that have all manner of things that you hope people attract people. 
um, like you know very very quickly. Uh, and then as you as you grow older, um, uh, you kind of dispense with quite a bit of that and become. Or at least I find I'm becoming much more interested in ordin- ordinary things, but trying to find a way of expressing those ordinary things in in a poetic sensibility that's uh, particular, um, particular to to me and sort of the way I see things in the world. So ordinariness is becoming more and more important, actually, and I, it's kind of a surprise to sort of think. I, I wish I. Cotton onto this sooner in life, I think I probably would have been happier. I think actors find that as well because you know when you're young, you you get a play and you kind of look for all the opportunities within it to show off what mm. it is that you can do, yeah. and so you'll jam a play full of as many kind of bravura moments as as humanly possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in a in a funny way, what you're doing then is you you're hijacking the play actually for your own ideas about what performance is yeah do you find did you find that you were in some ways not necessarily hijacking the music but looking for something other i think i think the dynamic's really different i mean one of the things i've always loved about working in theater has been how uh how people in the sense in the same room bring what they have to create this world of the play and to me, in the music world, the, the parallel that's there is the way performing musicians work together to bring a piece to life. Mm. Um, being a composer, if I'm not playing in the piece, um, I'm in a different sort of position there. I'm in a different kind of relationship. Um, yeah, certainly I can, I, can, I can see in earlier pieces, there is some really early pieces that I still really feel very fond of and feel very connected to. Um, and feel very strong about because they're very important things to say at the time. Um, and then I can also relate to thinking, well, if I was going to make a piece like that again now, what what do I what would come out differently? Because things would. Um, mm. I don't know that it's about. Um, you mentioned the word hijacking. I, I don't think it's that you. You're trying to bring things that aren't appropriate to the situation. It's just that when you're younger, there's so much inner tension to try and find your way in the world. It's it's really tough. I, um, I, I to being a being you know being a teacher of school kids way back in the day, I'd see this time and time again in these young people that are really uh, overwhelmed with how do I find how I exist, you know, because it's it's all happened. I'm constantly told that everything that's ever possible has already been, so how do I even begin at the age of 14 or 15 to put one foot in front of the other and find a way forward? And it's actually an enormous challenge. Um, so I think what you, you do what you do, and, sometimes, and you make mistakes along the way, or you things don't come out formed in the right way, but they might 10, 15 years later, you know. So I think... To me, the the thing about having a creative practice now that I'm in my mid fifties is you get this wonderful sense of an, of an arc of activity, and you find that you're returning to things that you thought you might have finished with, mm-hmm. but they come back as being present again. Uh, this work for my mum, the, the lost pages from the book of memory and forgetting for string quartet, is a work that was in my life for about ten years in bits and pieces. Um, and, and my brother and sister and I were all very active in caring for her as she t- 
travelled through dementia over a period of uh, seven or eight years, and she eventually passed away before the work actually got put together. But there was, there's, um, you know, there were definitely definitely periods in all of that long trajectory where I'm going, what am I going to, uh, how am I going to make sense of all this? Mm. You know, uh, and not knowing how to do it, and not feeling able to do it, and not having any sense of being being ready to either embrace what was happening to my mum or and also what was happening to me creatively so and and I didn't think that all of this would kind of somehow work its way through into something it was just too too, when I think of those years they were just so stretched all over the place and you can't you can't get a handle on anything so um I don't know if if any of this is sort of making sense but I think when it doesn't have to yeah okay (laughs) it's it's more that there does it does in that sense that what you what you're saying really, and this is what I've come coming to understand, is that you know, when I, I felt when I was young that my my life experience I could use in certain ways as a performer, mm. um, but I kept those two things in a funny way separate. Mm. But what I'm learning is that there are the, is to accept the bleed between one and the other. Yeah. And I, I think similarly, I, I'd, I'd say that too for me. I think um, the last couple of pieces that I've made have actually been about my parents yeah. and and not necessarily with the direct intention of doing so. No. But it, over time, certain richer understandings have emerged which has led you into this this space where you... you they're, they're both grief pieces, actually. Yeah. But uh, I didn't set out at the outset to make a grief piece that would be the last thing I'd want to do mm. um, so it, it's, it's what's wonderful about having a creative practice is the way that you can reveal yourself to yourself without intending to mm. and that we all have that capacity I mean this is the other thing that I grapple with as a, also as an educator you know everyone has this capacity in some way or other and there's lots of different ways to talk about it but, but in our society we often carve it off into, well, there are the creatives over there that kind of do this thing and they disconnect from an audience and then there's everybody else who has this capacity but we don't really embrace that, you know. Um, so... It's a misconception, isn't it, of what creative practice is? Yeah, you know, like, you know, in I'm, I'm not a, a big... I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert on, like, Jungian psychology, but I know Jung was one of the writers that I'd go to when I was in my you know, younger stage. And you talk about this sort of process of individuation and that your task as a person is to find out who you are and who you are in the world. Mm. And, uh, and some of his thinking about what it is to be a person, actually, I found incredibly influential uh, on all sorts of levels, um, not just as a musician, like as a person, you know. So we're, we're all unknown to ourselves. And so what I can see in my, in my life is how music has actually helped me find certain key understandings about who I am. Um, which doesn't mean that the music that I've made for public consumption is actually about me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that these pieces have their own life and, and what's wonderful about being a composer is when musicians and audiences come and talk to you afterwards and, and, and talk about their response to what, what the musical experience is. And it might be something quite different to what you actually imagined. But to me, that's actually that's a fantastic thing in the way that it connects people and everybody brings from themselves into that experience. Um, no, so while the work isn't about you, it's about being human, though. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I, 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 
I, like I've always been uncomfortable with the word composer. I feel like it's a word that brings a lot of baggage that uh, doesn't sit comfortably. Well, as does the word artist, yeah. as does the word actor. Yeah, you know, you're somehow like word. a spokesperson for you, or you're meant to be a spokesperson for your generation. And yet, I, I actually, as a young person, I, I found it really challenging to speak in public. I, it's just the whole idea of being a public spokesperson is just sort of anathema. Mm. Um, uh, I think the other thing about music that has always appealed to me is the way it stops us from talking. <laughs> Let's not play any right now. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> so, but, but you know, there's this, right there, there's this dimension to the musical experience, which is, I mean, how often do you get to sit together with a bunch of people you don't know in a live performance and listen? I mean, how often does that... And not talk at the same time. Mm. How often does that happen? Hardly ever. You know, like, it's it's a very rare and precious kind of environment. So there's... The more, the more I've written music for those sort of spaces, the more I understand the importance of this kind of acts of contemplation in public. It's, a, it's actually a beautiful thing because you're allowing, you know, you, as a writer of music, you're allowing people to bring all themselves into, into this world that doesn't have... Uh, I suppose maybe this is one of the differences between, say, theatre and concert performance is that when you remove the storytelling aspect in a shared language, people people ring of themselves in ways where they're not necessarily directed, you know, um, in the way that a story can direct people's responses to what's going on. So, so more and more I, I kind of think about writing music for situations where the music is a container for people to bring of, bring of themselves and sort of connect to what's there in front of them. And because most of the music I write is instrumental music rather than vocal music, there's a sort of a neutrality there which can allow people to sit with themselves and hear the music at the same time. And to me that's more and more interesting as an artist. Do, do, do you think it's... Do we... I think we struggle as a society, don't we, to actually recognise the need for that. It's almost like we're afraid of that silence. Yeah, we're think, afraid of that... Yeah stillness yeah and i think we're also we we seldom get the opportunity to suspend our in a thinking. yeah in it yeah, exactly yeah it's a really nice way to put it uh, there's so much self-talk that we live with or feel pressured to well live. even yeah well now advertising there's a billboard going around at the moment that says talk to yourself more yeah uh, it's yeah. a banking slogan i'm not quite sure what that means yeah. uh, a bunch of people standing on street corners going <laughs> But, but the whole notion that that uh, that there has to be almost an internal monologue that's going to direct us through life rather than reflection and peace. Yeah, and and actually, particularly listening to listening to someone else. Mm. Actually, I think we we devalue listening without perhaps being fully aware that that's what we're doing. Um, and I think certainly the musical space has been a wonderful way to learn how to listen. Um, and to listen without interrupting. Um, whereas the public space is, I think, something very different. So, so the kind of, I suppose, the, the musical experiences that I'm really interested in crafting now tend to go in that direction more and more. They're kind of spaces for contemplation. Uh, and it's not that I don't want there to be talk and discussion and conversation. It's just that I think... Um, not at the same time, you know, like, you know, we're complex 
as people. We, we kind of, our, our expressions of our humanity are really complex and, and nuanced and, and to, to be in the mode of talking about that all the time is actually very uh, simplistic, I think. And there's, there's lots of different ways to be together without having to get kind of tangled up in all of that. Well, there's also a compulsion, isn't there? I've got a friend who works in the corporate world and I was talking about having a space between your thought and your, and your action. I was talking about going, OK, well, if, I, if someone asks me a question, do I have to immediately come up with an answer? Yeah. And he was saying, well, within the corporate world, if you don't, you consider it to be less than. Yeah. So often people will just say things to fill that space. That's right. Yeah, you've got to look like you're making a decision of some kind. Yeah, yeah. in order to validate yeah. your being there or whatever salary it is that you happen to yeah. be on. And look, I think there is, there's certainly, um, there's certainly a, a, a need to have an ability like that. I mean, I have, I notice that in the arts world too, you know, in the, in the professional world, if I'm in a rehearsal and there's a passage that people are playing and it's uh, from a piece that I've given them uh, and it's not working. It's just not... It hasn't happened very often, but it has happened. And, and I've had to be on my mettle and just make some really quick decisions to try and solve the problem because people are looking to me to solve the problem because I'm the one that's brought them the peace. So there is something to be said for being able to respond quickly with really, cl you know, with clarity about what needs to happen in order to solve a problem. Um, but, yes, I think you're right also to, to put there that sometimes we demand it by default mm. rather than by necessity. And I think one of the things I've had to learn is how to respond out of necessity rather than responding from a, a default position which is just like filling up airtime because somebody's got to, you know. So I think it's very much about the, the sense of... You've got to be very... Yeah, you've got to be really tuned into what's appropriate and what's, what's ready, you know. Where, you know if, if there's a readiness there, then that's the time to act. Um, if it's better to wait then it's better to say nothing. Um, so it, well, we all struggle with that phrase, totally. I don't know, yeah, don't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think also I found it, I, I realise how, how hard it's been to learn how to listen to what other people are saying. Yeah. It's actually a very, very demanding uh, uh, discipline to listen carefully to someone else. And I don't feel that I'm particularly good at it. Um, and I've had to learn... How to get, how to get better at it? Well, again, it's that thing, isn't it? Because you know, the, because of the demand to have an answer, often we're only half listening, and we're spending the rest of our time thinking about what it is we're going to say. Now, if you put that into a musical context, mm. how does that work out? Um, gee, that's a good one. Yeah, um, because often the the musical context that I take to musicians are sort of. Sometimes there's, there's conversation early on, so there's sort of toing and froing from people saying, well, we're interested in this kind of a, a piece. Um, if I work in theatre, then I'll often get a brief, which will be deliberately connected to what the play or the script is. A lot of the time, though, it's, um, it's open to me to just sort of come up with the piece. And so the, the actual conversing about it is actually more around the technicalities of how do we get this to work. If you're in the theatre, you've got to you've got to listen to the piece, don't you? You've got to listen to the piece of theatre. You've got to hear True, the piece yeah, of theatre. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's always you never you never not in a space of connection. Yeah. And I think that was one of one of the biggest um, um, 
sort of things that I had to reframe in my thinking. So as a, as a young artist, all the messages that I picked up were driven around where you work in isolation, you come up with your grand plan, you give it to someone else, you don't talk to them, you know, and so on and so on and so on. You know, it's kind of the 19th century romantic kind of um, artist disconnected from society picture. Gen genius in, in their yeah, own. Yeah, the genius power. in the garret, you know, this kind of thing. That's in, in, the, in the classical music tradition, the Western classical tradition, that typology is still passed down pretty strongly. Mm. And it's a very dangerous one, I think. Um, it's, it's one that's certainly now being deconstructed and pulled apart and all of those kinds of things. Um, but when I was a kid in the, in the 1970s and when I was studying at uni in the 1980s, you know, those, those stereotypes were still very strong. They might have had a different face. But the basic premise was, well, you come up with your grand design and then... And if it's, if it's grand enough... If it's we'll grand play. enough, then the functionaries will build it for you kind of thing. Uh, but the reality, the real picture is, well, you're, you're, you have a conversation with someone and that seeds something and you go off and you start noodling around here and they go off and something else and then you meet again and then there's a little bit more that happens. So the first, some of the first pieces I wrote that I was really happy with came out of this conversational kind of space where there was an opportunity and I really wanted to make the most of the opportunity and that involved talking to people. Mm. You know, and that's still how it is for me. So well, that's what we call collaboration, isn't it? Yeah, or I think there's lots of different ways to look at what collaboration is. I, I, I don't know that I've done a lot of what you could call truly collaborative work. I think the most collaborative situations I've been in have been in 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 the theatre world, actually, where where you know what, whatever I'm doing is very much got to be in sync with the the other creatives and performers in the room. You know. Um, those, those are sort of the really the circumstances where, in a sense, the musical language that I bring is secondary to what's required. And that's actually an unusual situation for a composer to be in. Um, How do you mean secondary? You, you, you go into those situations looking at what, you, what you've got to bring and how that best fits, fits what's, what's there. And because there's so many... Um, yeah, there's, because there's so many things in the, there in terms of what people bring, you know, whether it's to do with lighting or set design or performance style or the script, you know. Um, you, I was always very aware of moulding my responses to... Uh, and I actually found it good to say, you know, if, you know um, to test my, my thinking when I would see a, a set design by Ralph Myers. So, you know, I'm mm. looking and I go, oh, that's the room it's going to be in. Okay. Actually, I found those things actually really good. There was a concreteness to sort of deal with, which would then put a frame around going, well, that wouldn't work with this wood, or, oh, in a space like that, you could put four speakers here, 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 and here, and do something like that. You know, so, so the, well, I actually, the interdisciplinary kind of talk, uh, I always found really fruitful because mm. it really helped put a frame around my own creative thinking that I wouldn't have put there if I was just left to my own devices. So I, I, I've, I, I've found actually it's, for me, it's always been a much healthier and a much more rewarding relationship to um, set some coordinates, listen to what other people got to say, go back and adjust the coordinates and keep trying to find the right relationship for the, for the circumstance that's there. So for me, a, a, a composition is in many respects a product of circumstance. It's not a... It's not a thing that's permanent in a certain way for all time. 
it arrives because of a situation and it takes a certain kind of shape and a certain kind of form to suit that situation. And then it might continue on or it might change, you know, according to whatever else happens afterwards. So there's, there's a much more fluid um, interaction in the, in, the, in the creative space. But historically, that's not the picture that you get. Historically, you get the pictures there are creators and then there are the people who bring these creations to the world. Yeah, yeah, Beethoven slaves over his piano banging away for however long and now it pops symphony number seven. That's it, just like that. Yeah. It just had water and stir, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's not. I mean, and I've, I actually, that's probably not actually true, that picture either, but that's the picture that we get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And But that's the picture we get with respect to all creativity in some ways. As a society, we go, okay, well, then there's this guy in this sort of room and he's painting away and these miracle things come out and we all go, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Uh, but in actual fact, it's just, it is a product of a life. Well, that's right. And, you know, if, you, if you're... So I've learned over time to really look at what does it mean to be in the world and who am I connected to? Mm. How do those... How, what, you know, in a way that anybody would. You know, that there's no separation there. It's like we all do this. We all look for how we feel connected and who we feel connected to. That's, that's, that's something that doesn't... That's something that everyone feels. <coughs> so, um, yeah, it's fascinating to me to see how the role that my family has played in, in um, you know, the connection that that's played. And it hasn't been a deliberate one. It's just kind of come through. These things have happened and that have then led into creative works that that I've made, you know, the, the Kolam pieces, which are these beautiful sort of, this mandala practice that happens in southern India. Um, Ruby, my daughter, was um, the person who kind of opened that world to me. She was 12 and we were living in a village in, in near Pondicherry in southern India for about three months. And um, well, Rosalie and I were working with a theatre company and Ruby was there with us and she would spend her days just talking to the domestic staff, you know, these lovely village women who couldn't speak English and that sign language and giggle and all this kind of thing and, and they just started showing you how to make column, just like that. And I'm watching this and I'm going, this is amazing. And that, that experience um, generated quite a few years' worth of, of um, attempts on my part to sort of take that, you know, work with that experience in a sonic way. And, you know, I think now, well, would I've... Would that have come across to me as being something really significant if I hadn't have seen Ruby be drawn into that? No, well, maybe yes, but, but there was a, an, a, you know, a really special kind of contact there of seeing her learn this tradition, which is what a 12-year-old girl would do. Mm. You know, that's, that's what you do when you're there. That's one of the crucial things that comes, comes your way. And so, that's been an ongoing exploration, that column. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's a good, good 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So and this is something that you know you don't you don't cook these things up. They happen to you, yeah. and I think that's that's one of the things that I've really had to learn um, over time is to be open to things that that happen, which don't necessarily sit with what you think you should be doing or what you think you're on about at any given point in time. Um, so when you know when opportunities arise, it's really important to be present. For that. Well, you can't see an opportunity if you're looking at your shoes, can you? That's right. Or, or, yeah. or 
or intensely involved in a, an internal dialogue and self-examination, yeah, striving yeah, yeah. for some sort of looking inside yourself for some kind of moment of divine aspiration that's right. inspiration yeah aspiration. And, that, and that's one of the stereotypes you, you pick up i think in artistic training is you know it's within you and you have to find it and reveal it to the world and what i found is the exact opposite <laughs> yeah, whatever it is that, that's interesting is is out there and you've just got to tune into it a little harder and then find a way of working with it That's an edited piece of In the Spirit House, composed by this fortnight's guest, Tim Dargaville, and performed by Bernadette Harvey on piano, Diana Doherty on oboe, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to give it a go, Alexandra Ogay on cor anglais, recorded live by ABC Classic FM at Elder Hall in Adelaide. You're listening to Episode 5 of Making Art. Making Art is released alongside a companion article about the featured artist written by me and published first in the Daily Review. The Daily Review is Australia's premier free online arts news and opinion site and it's totally, totally self-supporting, relying on you, the reader, to keep it going. So if you're a fan of quality arts journalism, I encourage you to get online and have a look. And while you're there, click on the menu and head to the support page. Consider a modest contribution that will help us maintain quality arts journalism as part of the national discourse. The Daily Review, like this podcast, is free, and I know we all like free things. But, you see, the truth is, nothing made costs nothing to make. So pay what you can, make a gold coin donation, and it may even help me cover the cost of making this podcast. And you can also visit the Making Art website for helpful links to things that have been mentioned in our conversation at www.makingart.com.au. And that's the end of the cell, except to say that next fortnight we'll be running our first competition as a way of raising a bit of cash to keep this little creative boat afloat, so keep an ear out for that. Now, it's back to my conversation with Tim. After a short break, a fresh pot of tea and a quick trip to the backyard to catch some of that delicious winter sun, I asked him what he feels he's learnt, having been a composer, for 30 years. So here's a little bit more of In the Spirit House and Tim Dargwell, with the occasional interruption from me. There are things about music making I still don't really understand uh, in, in the sense of I, I can't explain uh, 
I can't explain a feeling in words. Uh, you know, I, I can't explain the, like, I can't explain the quality of sound on, like, the lowest note of an alto flute. It's just the most haunting sound. I can't find the words to describe it. But will I use it in a piece? Absolutely. You know? Uh, it, it is its own reality. Um, so, and likewise, the singing voice. Having said that I don't really write for voice, I love singing voices. Uh, there's the grains of voices are beautiful. I suppose it's because they're so precious, I find it very confronting to think about making something for someone else's voice. I, I still find that quite a challenge to, to get my head around. Um, yeah, so these qualities and these sensibilities that we, you, 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 you can see my, my fingers are moving because it's kind of like it's tactile. I'm trying to, it's like I'm, I'm feeling it, but I can't, I can't kind of, any word that I'll put on it just doesn't give us the real grit of what's but there. You could write the note down and have someone play it. And yeah, and you, get, you, would get, you would get something close to it. Or it might be the other way around. Somebody will do something in a certain way and you go, I can put that onto the page or notate some aspect of that. Music notation is, is in itself as incomplete as spoken language is. You know, it's these kind of calligraphic signs on a page that you can put as much information as you like on there, but you won't necessarily get the sound that you've tried to capture. Um, and what I've kind of had to learn how to do as a composer of notated music is realise what's the best stuff to put on the page and what can I leave to the players just to do because they can do it far better than anything I could scribble onto a page. And we talk about it in rehearsal. You I know, guess so in the way that you're, you're kind of using the language of music to be more restrictive, the more you put on there, the more you're limiting the possibility of it being something else or something other or something... I know if, 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 if the direction in a piece of uh, theatre is so prescriptive... Um, you clam up as an actor. Well, you struggle to understand what the purpose of it is because it, it's eliminating my response to that word. Yeah, if you tell me right. that there's that word and it has to be said X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, all these other instructions mm. about how that word has to be said, well, then that's limiting my connection to that word. That's that's actually connecting me to the instructions. It's not connecting me to the word. Well, that's right. And, and what it's, you see, your job as an actor is to embody in, in such a way that people watching you portray this word or character or whatever is, uh, are completely convinced by your believability. Yeah? And it's exactly the same for a performing musician when they're working with a notated score. They actually have to do the, the magical work, um, as you would as an actor, of creating a reality for a performance that is believable. And I, I fundamentally respect that about players. I, I think it's the most incredible gift. I mean, having been a pianist for many years myself, and I know what, it's, what it is to be a player uh, and what it is to nuance sounds for, for listeners. And it, it's an incredible world to be in. So when you're writing for people who do that, you have to leave them room to, to bring of their own deep, rich skill set. Because if you hamper their style, what you get is a performance that nobody really wants to hear and is convinced by. And why would, why would you do that? So for me, the craft of notation is actually about looking at 
what's the most important stuff to put on the page? And then uh, suggest, in a sense, to these really wonderful players who have got so much to draw on. And then if there's misunderstandings or things that are not clear, well, then the next level is to talk. We just sit down and we talk about, okay, maybe it's more like this than that, or it goes in this direction, or it's more at this speed, you know, this kind of thing. So there's always the lovely to and fro that's conversational. Um, but it's, it's often around what's on the page in the contemporary classical sphere. But I've also worked as a jazz musician, you know, and improvisation is a modality that is uh, a dear one for me. And it's actually very much the creative space that I work out when I'm creating pieces for other people is I'll sit at the piano and just make stuff up. And then figure out, oh, okay, well, that's a nice chord, let's use that one, all right, well, you know, from there. So there's, there's always this sense of stepping into the flow of sound being a tactile world, like the way, uh, you know, you would use words. Yeah, language is... You know, here's a, here's a, here's a killer phrase. That's a great way to... That'll get people's attention. You know, this, this thing about uh, the, the, the tactile nature of of, of these, these, these shapes and phrases that, that can really grab people's attention is, is kind of really what it's about. Now, how you, can, how you, get, how you get that to happen in you know, an experience, you use every, every means at your disposal to get it to work, whether it's talking or berating or scribbling down on the page or ripping up the page that you just scribble down and doing another one and getting it more, more right. You know, you use whatever means at your disposal to kind of get that kind of that that magic um, there so that people are straight away in because you don't want to waste your listeners time if you're asking people to sit and listen you really uh, that's a gift they're giving you and you really want to make sure that you use that with great respect and with great clarity yeah. so that so that people people are going ah I'm in this piece and I'm, I'm with it. You know, this is the, the beautiful thing that people often talk about how music seduces them, yeah, particularly if it's... And I think that thing about seduction is actually that you're convinced by its argument. You're allowing yourself to be led by it because it's speaking to you in strong enough terms for you to go, yep, I'll go with you. I'm not going to struggle against you. I'm, I'm in. I've made that fundamental decision and I'm going. Um, so you really have to be on your metal as a writer of music to honour that, that space. You can't just get people in at the opening and then forget about them. It's, 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 it has to, you have to take your audience, whoever that audience might be, um, uh, you, you really have to have them in mind as you go about making these, um, these things. Because otherwise, who, who is it for? Um, well, you. And that's... Uh, but that then I can just make stuff up at the piano at home on my own. Why make, why make that public? Yeah, exactly. What's, what, so the public dimension is actually something that you really have to sort through as to uh, not just why you're doing what you're doing, but what's the reality of this and, why, and, and how does it fit the public domain? It's not, a, it's not a why question, it's a how question. Well, you were talking earlier on about uh, some pieces you wrote 20 years ago that, that were large and needed a big canvas. What was the big canvas? What was the public kind of... What was... 
I'm struggling with and words Neil, here. And your hands are out there. This no, is, you know, I'm really enjoying out. this. I've got my hands this out. Is great. This great is big, wide this is a great, hands. a great example of where words fail. Words do fail. What yeah. was th- that big canvas that you felt you needed that bigger canvas to write? Um, actually, in retrospect, um, the bigger canvas was something from within me saying, I can do this. Because I was young at that time. When I say young, I was probably in my mid 30s, you know, but young in terms of a composing career. You know, my first published work was when I was 28, and then I got a few opportunities here and there to make pieces. Um, those particular works were created for two wonderful pianists, brother and sister, Michael Kieran Harvey and Bernadette Harvey, both of whom I've worked a lot over the years. And Michael, in particular, was really significant in offering me. Um, great opportunities for exposure as a young, younger composer. So you grab those opportunities when you're there, but a lot of what goes with the opportunity is you're worrying, can I actually do this? Because you don't know. It's, you know, those first experiences of public exposure uh, and, and the, the pressure that you feel from within to... A, make a strong statement and B, um, hope that it's going to lead somewhere. And so, well, you know, it's a whole pressure to make it, isn't it? It's like, am I, am I, am I good, good enough? Right? Can I do this? That's right. So I think with these pieces, um, uh, the bigger canvas was about wanting to step up into, yep, I can do the grander statement. Um, uh, but again, it was that thing about... Um, that with all these other other tensions in the space, um, uh, there was also anxiety about, you know, will it, will that, will it all work, you know, um, and you just take those, you take those experiences as they come and you learn from them. I learned a lot by right creating. The, the pieces are all called Negra. There's four movements, and the whole cycle lasts about an hour, and it's for different combinations of piano and percussion instruments. Um, the first, the first movement won me a, a national award for piano composition, so it was great, sort of validating moment as a, a younger composer. Um, this was in 1999, so it's going back some nearly 20 years. Um, and and the fourth movement, which was for two pianos and two percussion, was played at the Sydney Opera House, and that was received really well, also. Um, my sort of what I wanted to do was create a large cycle of movements that was all about uh, exploring really strong rhythmic energy because particularly at that point I was really drawn to strong rhythmic states that had a lot of excitement and energy and detail and uh, intricacy and that would get people in and just not let go of them and take people on a wild ride and all this kind of stuff because that's really what I wanted to do and at that point, I hadn't made a lot of music to know that I could do that, mm. if that makes sense. Yep. So these works were a real step up in being ambitious on my part at the time, and they were successful to do so. So three of them have been played public, and there's one movement that hasn't been, but it's never been performed as a cycle. Um, the other thing that those works did back in the day was they also really front and centre said to me and to other people that... Um, rhythmic culture that's not Western European is of real interest. And at that stage with those pieces, I was drawing on my own learning of uh, traditional music from West Africa. So I've spent some years, quite a year, quite a long time ago now in the, in the 1980s, 
learning from a, a master drummer from Ghana who came out from the States and, and uh, taught traditional culture from Ghana and Togo and Benin. And uh, it was, it's all incredibly rich rhythmic culture that goes with dance. Uh, and so rhythm is front and centre, the thing. You don't need anything else. You just need like a whole bunch of percussion instruments and off you go and it's absolutely incredible. Um, so that walking into that world as a young fella in my 20s was life-changing on all sorts of levels. So these works were cooking for quite a while as being, I want to make a creative response that honours this sort of experience. And I was a young man. Uh, and so that was the response that I made then, and I'm still proud of those pieces. Um, I've learned more. I mean, since then, that fascination with rhythm has travelled over to southern India, and this is what's fueled the Colam pieces. Yeah. So I'm very much someone who's drawn into diverse, diverse worlds and seeking to try and find ways to connect them in ways that feel <coughs> relatable and, dare I say, authentic, whether that authentic might mean I'm just trying to make sense of experiences that have happened to me that have been really powerful and express that in, a, in musical terms. So that's meant that a lot of music that I've worked with has been a very personal response to learning Konokol, which is the Carnatic vocal percussion um, system in southern India, or learning traditional West African drumming. Um, those experiences were incredibly enriching. Um, and. You, you want to work with that, but you want to work with it in a way that feels not disrespectful. But also not uh, tossing out your own musical heritage. Well, you bring everything else with you. So the other thing that happens when you deal with something that is uh, what you might call different or other or uh, from the outside or, you know, in Western musicology, there's Western and there's non-Western and non-Western is everything else. There's a great tradition, isn't there? I mean, Debussy, the Paris Expo Exposition, the Gamelan Orchestra, the, the marriage of... Yeah, and for me, I've, I've, um, I've really struggled with those traditional distinctions. Um, uh, and when I say struggled, the struggle has been about, well, there's the accepted academic paradigm about how we read this, there's Western and there's non-Western. And I fundamentally don't relate to that. Uh, I, and the reason I don't relate to it is because, you know, the, these cultures like Southern India or West Africa, they're all northwest of where I live, literally. So this, this kind of false distinction about Western and non-Western is false. It doesn't actually reflect the actual reality, which is a personal one. It's a one about direct contact with people. It's one where you hear little anecdotes and little stories. Um, so my relationship to trying to create music that's inspired by music from southern India or from West Africa has been a very personal response. And that means what, what happens when you're dealing with um, experiences that are from somewhere else that's not home is it also brings into relief what, what, what you bring with you. And so two things are happening there. Uh, there's what you are wanting to make contact with which is over there somewhere in the distance, far away. And then there's what you've got in your suitcase. And what we tend to do is we think about what's over there far away because it's interesting and it's different and it's exotic in quotation marks. That's another term I hate. Um, but it's, it's, that's, that's what we're most fascinated with. And what I've had to learn, actually, is, well, what have I got with me when I'm going there? Because well, what a, really... It's a give and take what, relationship, isn't yeah, it? Well, it's also what happens in the creative space is all of that comes up for grabs. All of that is... All of that is there. 
If you're not aware of what you have with you when you go there, you are missing a significant part of the picture. And the beautiful thing about a creative practice is it's actually this is where all this stuff you know, bubbles up to the surface. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful way of examining where you are at a particular point in your life and what you've, what you've experienced and what you've brought with you and what new understandings are coming out and how things might be changing. Oh, am I going in this direction? Jesus, I didn't think I'd go there. You know, this, this, it's a wonderful way. Once, once you learn the way you operate uh, as, a, as a person who uses creativity to understand your place in the world and understand situations that people in your world might need, um, that's kind of how I think about what I do as a musician now. Well, that's again getting back to that knowing yourself thing, isn't it? The Jungian and the... Well, how, yeah, there's so many different different ways, I suppose, of the tapping... The Buddhist... Yeah, that's right. There's, there's lots of different systems that you can apply. And I think the creative space is where you get to develop your system. You and, that's, that and that's what's so fundamental to me about the teaching of it also, because I do lots of teaching of... of you know, sort of mentoring of people trying to find their own creative voice. And it's a very distinctive and it's a very personal process that's just not repeatable person by person. Once you tune into what somebody's doing creatively in their own work, you can sort of nudge them in a certain direction going, ah, you, you might find mm, this interesting. Yeah. Uh, and each person is different. And, and it's fundamental that you respect that. But it's interesting though, isn't it? Because in a Western education around creativity, let's call it Western uh, arts education, <coughs> we tend to sort of think exclusively about certain things and that there is a way to be an artist and there is this way and that there, there, there's a kind of a, 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 a very clear pathway to doing these things oh. and that it has, that the Western tradition has value above other things. Um. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking. I mean, I've I've had to, re I've had to reframe my understanding of the Western classical music tradition as I learned it as a child, and I've gone through periods where I've been disaffected with it, uh, and then more recent periods where I've really reconnected to it. Um, it's almost like a relationship with your parents, actually. I mean, I. Um, you know, there was a piano in, in the house when I was a kid and I probably when I was three or four I would probably just do the, you know, stand up and kind of just... Make a bit of noise. Make a bit of a racket. Um, so my, my relationship with the music of Bach and all these German guys from the 1600s, 1700s, let's say, and even earlier back, it goes back ever since I can remember. There's so, so much in me. And it's me, there are certain pieces that I will return to and just come back over and over and just marvel at how magical they are. Uh, and yet that's not the only classical tradition in town. That's not the only music history there is. There's just what happens to you when you go travelling. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I've also had to reconcile all of these other experiences. I mean, as a, as a teenager, I got into into um, sort of 1970s progressive rock and jazz in a big way, and that didn't sit, you know. That was like, I have to sit in the closet and hide. But all of that also was quite a big impact, you know. When I was uh, in my early 20s, the, you know, Keith Jarrett's solo piano recordings were really significant things. These, these are guys sitting in the piano just talking out loud for an hour and a half, just like that, because you can. And that was revelatory 
because, you know, at that stage I was training to be a composer and everything had to be written and you had to think really hard and prepare all your notes and all. You couldn't just make stuff up and it could be compelling. But it was compelling. So when I think about all of the experiences that, that have got me to the point that I'm at now, they're so rich and they're so diverse. What does it tell you? Well, it's all in the mix. Um, which doesn't mean they all get equal weighting. And it doesn't mean that they are all... Um, you know, you'll trend towards some aspect of that for one piece and then somewhere else you might go somewhere else. Um, the, the, more prof the more recent things that have really um, informed me have been actually um, relationships with people rather than music per se. You know, often composers will talk about the musical works that have inspired them and yada, 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 and I can give you a long list too. But when I think about how... Um, how, how greatly satisfying it's been over the last couple of years to write these two works, one for my mum and one for my dad, mm. and to be able to finally find a way to do that. Because it's something I've always sort of wanted to do but never felt able to. And so not surprisingly, they both had to leave this mortal coil before I could be able to do it, but that's also probably part of the picture. Neither of them were musicians, but they both connected to both artistic and spiritual relationships. So the, fundam the fundamental things in my makeup I can now see came from them, really, in terms of the connection to the spiritual and also the, the connection to community. You know, they were both very strongly community-minded people. We're here to help each other. Mm -hmm. And so... Growing up as a teenager in the 70s in the house with these two very community-minded people and I'm sort of getting this music education which says, no, you need to be like, you know, the isolated, depressive figure in the garret with a mental illness and yada, yada, yada. And it was really confusing. I found, I, I, I just, those, these different messages were just really hard to rec reconcile. Um, and so not surprisingly, I didn't really pick up on being a composer in any meaningful, realistic way until I was much older. So the actual first sort of pieces that I started making that seemed to really hit the spot were when I was probably in my early 30s. So I, for quite a long time, there was this sense of, I don't know where all of this sits. And all sorts of other things had to happen to kind of get me to the point of writing, really. There's a, there's a compulsion, isn't there, that, or an expectation that people are going to be come out of, say, the conservatory or the... NIDA or whatever and they're going to be a fully formed thing and they're just going to go off and they're going to be geniuses. Mm, it's just going to happen, yeah. yeah. And Well, great luck to them if it does. That's excellent. Um, and sometimes that actually happens. That's right, it's not it can. The way, and that's what we glamorise or uh, idealise, that kind of model. As you said earlier, the, the, the depressive in the garret banging away at a piano that's missing a key and scribbling furiously yeah, on a yeah. piece of paper. I mean, it's, it's such an... When I, when, you, when I hear you describe that, I think, how anachronistic is that? I mean, it's such an old, old, old paradigm which is so not connected to the current world as it is. And yet, and yet it is still the way that often we think of the creative experience. Yeah, or there's traces in there in our kind of understanding, you know, if it's a bit like if you drill down hard enough, what will you find? Um, uh, yeah, uh, 
I think also, look, you know, the, the, the travels that we've all done as a family in southern India or, or wherever, often one of the things that's come home really strongly also is the way in other cultures, like the Tamil culture or Balinese, where, you know, what we would call artistic practice isn't called artistic practice there. People just make stuff when it's beautiful and everybody does it. You know, everybody can do it. So there's, there's not this sort of false distinction about there are artists and then there's everybody else. You know, the world of Kola and these mandala things in, in southern India, all, all women make them, and particularly young women and particularly domestic servants and young girls. Um, it's, it's, it's a reality that's more than just... It's not an art practice. It's not seen as an art practice. It's just this beautiful thing that you all do. Uh, so this kind of there's a false distinction uh, that that really doesn't help in our in our kind of view of things, and this is where you know these kinds of realizations have led me to this kind of reappraisal of the ordinary as being well, the ordinary is extraordinary, depending on the view that you have. Um, you know, my dad, my, my father, Doug was uh, he was an industrial chemist who became an Anglican minister. So this thing about faith and reason. Uh, went in tandem throughout his whole life. And, you know, I remember him, um, uh, he never schooled me in church. I mean, he hugged, you know, we all went along as kids and then all three of us kind of lost interest when we were teenagers. And he never, um, he never really, he never made that an issue. So incredibly broad, you know, when I think about it now, I just think an amazing character, really, who just let us find our own way with things that we felt were important. And one of his, I remember one of his favourite uh, figures as was St Francis of Assisi just this thing about well if you connect to nature and you connect to birds and you connect to plant life and you see it as a great gift you're there that is a spiritual experience totally and uh, so so when I was in my 20s and I was studying at Latrobe Uni with Keith Humble and coming across the bird music of Olivia Messier I'm thinking ah you know, there was a really strong connection there. Um, but he didn't know, quite know how that no, fitted into just, the it's a, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was. And I still don't know how it all fits together. Mm. Like I've got a better handle on it. But it's taken a very long time. Um, and it should take a very long time. And I think this is another one of the struggles. We're all supposed to find a spot like right then, and then you've got to find that next sweet spot right then also. Mm. But the reality is that everything is in flux and everything is kind of in states of emergence and you don't know how it fits together. And then there might be points on the way where you can see, ah, this, this has coalesced at the right time. Now's the time to do this, as say the case with the string quartet for my mum um, was. It was. It finally got to a point where you go, ah, I can see how it all connects now. There it is. And, and, and it shaped the work. Um, the piece for my father, which is this piece that's being premiered next week, uh, at the salon in the Melbourne Recital Centre called After and Before. It's not so much about him, but it it's stems from this book that he gave me, which was Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, um, when I was about 15. And it's got all his elegant handwriting, his notes in there, his anecdotes about his kind of just him writing to himself about what he thinks these phrases like before and after follow each other mean. And since, and, and so I've had this book for years and I've dipped in and out of it from time to time. And then last year... Um, when I was sort of starting work on this piece, not knowing what it was going to be about, I just kind of went to this book and started revisiting it again and, 
there was, you know, the, you know, seeing these beautiful kind of poetic, aphoristic expressions about the cyclic nature of time and about how things recur but they don't recur the same way and about how, how water, you know, water wears away stone and, and then all of these things about impermanence and impermanence, all of these other kind of re understandings kind of coming back into this, these beautiful writings about, uh, of, of Lao Tzu's and then seeing Dad's handwriting there because he died by this stage. And, and I'm thinking, uh, well, isn't that it? There, there it is. And so the piece, which is called After and Before, is um, sort of structured around the structure of the Tao Te Ching. So it's two movements that are about the, the, the same length as each other and they kind of reference the yin-yang, so they're complementary to each other. You know, they're sort of opposites to each other, but they had the, the seed of each other in them. Hmm. And this is the kind of thing that fascinated my father, scientist and spirit man that he was, you know, this, this, this notion about the natural world and the spirit world and the scientific world. And so um, I made this piece which was not about his person as much as the, the mind that I felt that he embodied, you know. So, so this, the, which is, so it's a very different kind of piece to the the string quartet, the Lost Pages string quartet, which, in for my mum, which was really a response, my personal response to her personal circumstance. This work for for dad was not so much; it wasn't f for him even. It was more uh, connected to something he gave me. And so, it's wonderful to see that you can actually make experiences from these very different kind of tangents. And these very, they're all relationship oriented, but they're also true to that relationship. My mum was very much a front and centre woman. I just, she was undeniable, indomitable, could not, you know, the issues, you know, always for me were about separation in a way from her. Dad was a mystery man. Mm. Uh, he was, he was always wondering what was he, th what was he thinking? Because he was, well, he was probably wondering, what am I thinking? In, well, in, in some ways, yeah, you know, he also, was exploring that unknownness. Totally. And his way to do it was to not talk too much, whereas my mum was garrulous. And so, um, yeah, so fascinating to see these creative responses years, years after they divorced, because they, they divorced each other. They died, both of them died within a couple of months of each other, but they divorced each other 30 years previously. So, and then fascinating to see that these creative responses arrive at around about the same time, for me, mm. after their passing. Um, all of that's amazing. I, I just kind of feel like that's how wonderful to have that in a life, actually. And this is where the economic paradigm just doesn't come into the picture. It's like, to me, it's wonderful to have had that experience of being able to tune into a way to honour both parents in ways that are particular to my relationship to them, in ways that people could come and share in as well. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to have in a life. And everyone should have it, I think. Well, everyone can have it. Can. Um, in the way that you were talking about, the Mandelas and the, the simple things that we can do to express ourselves in that way. Yeah. Or investigate ourselves in that way, if we so choose. Yeah. Look, sometimes I think it's it, when I tell, when I when listening to myself talk to you now, and I'm thinking, am I investigating myself, or is this, or, or is it beyond self? You know, is it about connection? So, one of the issues that I f f 
find still problematic is this notion of self and how self works and, and for artists, let's say. So artists construct their identity through their art. And yet what I feel time and time again with pieces of music that's got my name on it is, well, I'm not making the pieces in performance. The performers, the players are making that happen. I've given them something, but they're actually making that real for people. So this notion of self as being a defined thing actually is a lot more fluid than you might think. Um, and again, you know, the, the Buddhist notion of self is one where there's no self. The true form of self is, is when it dissolves. The doctrine of no soul is, is how it's put there. I'm not, a stu I'm not a student of Buddhism, so I'm not going to say anything that resembles anything resembling expert commentary. But the notion that you can have a, a view of relationship to the world where all beings are connected and that there's no concept of self it's one of the most, it is the most radical it is the most radical thought that actually this thing about you being Neil and me being Tim and you're a separate person from me well actually that's an illusion hmm. that's not really what's there there's 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 us and the tree out the back we are all there so um, and actually I think dad in particular was very clued into this um, in very quiet ways he was a very quiet man, but he was very clued into how to be with people mm. and not interfere with them in the in the in the space. Uh, he was a he was very he was he was a great listener, my dad. Uh, uh, Is that where you were uh, developing understanding of the desire or of the need to hear each other? has grown out of that relationship. With oh, it certainly was a fundamental relationship, yeah. That was Making Art, Episode 5. My thanks to Tim Dargavall for allowing me into his creative space. Colam for Saxophone Quartet. Our theme music was composed by my guest, Tim Dargavall, and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Our website was designed by Pixel Shifter and technical production is by the man sitting in front of me, Ben Churchill, at Sonic Playground. And the show was produced by me, Neil Piggott. One of Tim's recent compositions, as we discussed after and before, written about his father, will be performed at the Melbourne Recital Centre this coming Tuesday, the 10th of July, in the beautiful Salon, as part of a program Claire de Lune by the Sinzigi Ensemble. I hope I pronounced that right. Claire de Lune at the Melbourne Recital Centre. For tickets, go to melbournerecital.com.au. And you can join me in a fortnight when I'll again be coming to you from somewhere I haven't decided yet, but I'm thinking a playwright. Whoever's our next choice, that episode will go up on the 22nd of July. And don't forget to check out Australia's number one arts pages at the Daily Review and our website, www.makingart.com.au. Now, I was going to leave you with Bernadette Harvey playing a companion piece to our theme music, Column for Piano. But here instead is Tim talking about how he learned from his mother the true power of music. And we'll follow that with a bit of Elgar. Bye for now.
Uh, Mum could be rendered speechless by a piece of music. Um, and I remember seeing that when I was quite young and thinking, are you all right? <laughs> and she said, yeah, yeah yes. And, but, but she showed me that that's possible. And I've subsequently had that experience myself a number of times in, in my life where you just go, I, I can't speak because it's just so fucking amazing or whatever it happens to be. Um, what music was that for you? Um, or was it a place and music? or was it? A... I, I can remember more clearly what it was for my mum, mm. actually. Um, it's a very distinct memory I've got. She, she'd had this brain tumour. I was mm. about 16. She'd had a brain tumour, which in the end we think was the cause of her dementia. progression into dementia. And this was in the mid-1970s. She had to, she'd just collapsed at home, was operated on that night, probably could have lost the sight in one of her eyes. It was a real... It was a full-on thing that just came out of, like, bulk from the blue. Um, and then she um, took time off work and recovered at home. Dad cared for her. And I just remember one occasion where she, she, she had this lovely collection of LPs, most of which I still got. And the record that was on the turntable was Elgar's Cello Concerto. Oh, beautiful. With, and a classic recording of Jacqueline Dupre and mm. Daniel Berenboy. And that's the first movement. And Mum was just sitting in the kitchen and she just had tears streaming down her face. And I saw this and started asking her questions and she just kind of put her hand up and said, so we just don't talk. And so I just sat with her. And we listened to the whole side of the LP like that. Just sitting like that. And knowing that there's a tremendous and incredible feeling. I mean, it's a piece that I've always loved since that time. But I certainly learnt from her, from that experience, that you can really love a piece. Like, you can, you can be rendered not able to talk uh, as a result. It was speaking to her in such a profound way. So by, by the time we got to the end of the album, um, I didn't even bother to ask her any more questions. I kind of got, no, you, you don't need to talk about what's just happened there. It just is. <laughs> 